Hello and welcome to GabFest Reads for the month of November. I'm Emily Bazelon, one of the hosts of Slate's Political GabFest. I am so pleased to be joined today by James Sturm, who is the author of a new adaptation of Watership Down. Hey, James. Hello, Emily. And I should say also that this book is um, adapted and illustrated by you and also Joe Sutphin. Watership Down was originally published in 1972 by Richard Adams. It's an epic fable about rabbits. Hazel and Fiverr and their companions are in search of a home. They're looking to establish their own warren, safe from human intrusion on their natural world and also from other rabbits who want to control them. The book is a childhood classic that is not just for children by any means. It was actually banned in China in 1965 because it has a message supposedly about Marxism and government corruption. Though I confess that when I read it as a kid, I didn't think about that at all. James, let's start with just this basic question. What drew you to this book? When was the first time you read it? And do you remember how you responded to it then? The book has kind of been in my life um, for as long as I remember, though I didn't read it until I moved to Vermont in 2001. Uh, My parents had a copy on their bookcase, and uh, I remember trying to read it and uh, and failing. It kind of was very bewildering. The title was bewildering. Like, what's a watership? Why did it go down? Uh, There was like this old-fashioned engraving of a rabbit on the cover. Um, The the book started with a a quote from Agamemnon, and, and then it launched into like a page-long description of a meadow. Uh, and I was like, okay, no, thank you. I'm going to go back to my Fantastic Four comics. <laughs> and, uh, and I left it there on the shelf. So when I moved to Vermont, the first place we lived was on a dirt road, and, and we had one car, and I was out in, in the woods a lot. And um, my first daughter was just born Eva, and I was in the Heartland Public Library, and I saw Watership Down Out, and I thought, oh, let me, let me check this out. And uh, I'll give it another try. And I totally fell in love with it. And as I was like taking walks in the woods, and it just made me so much more alive to the environment, Um, you know, noticing trees and copses and and rivers and um, his nature writing and descriptions are are so vivid. And then what happened, of course, I kept reading and I realized like, wow, this, this book is a page turner. And it has all the pleasures and joys of the superhero comics that I, I did love as a kid. You know, good characters and villains. And, and each character had like a, seemed like had a superpower, um, whether it's like super strong or fast. And then, you know, I read it over and over again over the years. I feel like this book is, yes, it's a page turner. It has a lot of suspense and drama in it. And I thought your adaptation did a wonderful job of that aspect of the book. I found myself found myself not wanting to put it down at night. So the story is enveloping. I also think the characters are the main thing that at least pulled me in. I remember particularly Hazel and Fiverr's relationship from reading it for the first time, I think when I was a kid or a teenager. And, you know, Hazel is the sort of older caretaker of the two of them. Fiverr is very vulnerable. He has these visions which freak everybody out, but turn out to be really prescient. Do you see their relationship as kind of fundamental to the book and what role is it playing? Yeah, it's it's certainly central. Uh, there, there are brothers Hazel has learned to like listen to Fiverr. You know, Fiverr will have these these premonitions uh, that that tend to come true and start sticking up uh, for him. Fiverr is like a little character that a lot of people dismiss. Like, oh, you make up these stories to get attention, and this is the way you have powers. Um, Fiverr is also kind of a, a bit of a badass uh, 
in his own way too. Um, he really has the courage of his convictions, even when nobody else will believe him. He's willing to walk away from what seems like comfortable situations uh, that nobody else can see are really dangerous, uh, and he's he's willing to really believe his his inner voice. And and for that, I really really love uh, Fiverr's character. Yeah, Hazel, Hazel's just such a wonderful character in the sense that they're kind of like the leader of, of you know, becomes like the chief rabbit of this Warren and, and does so not because uh, he's the fastest or the strongest, um, but really in some ways the most empathetic and the most sensitive um, and not willing to leave anybody behind, uh, not allowing anyone to be bullied, willing to like reach out and trust other rabbits who have, you know, forgive rabbits who have wronged him and even to like forge relationships with other creatures that just seem like just crazy talk to other rabbits. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that he is not the obvious hero character because he's so empathetic and sensitive. I'm sure that's part of why I like this book as a kid. Which other characters were you especially drawn to? Who do you think stands out? Kahar, the seagull is like a great character. It's like this this injured seagull that the rabbits kind of nurse back to health and then kind of become uh, friendly with. And it's funny because like this, this whole idea of like empathy and, and all these, hum, you know, humanistic values, um, they just don't do that because it's the right thing to do. It's kind of like tactical in a way. Um, when they save this little mouse at one point in the book, like later on, this mouse gives them like really important intel that saves their lives. Um, and Kahar is just like this just very colorful character who's like very worldly um, and has seen the world and has been, been to big water uh, the ocean and, uh, and everybody's kind of like scared and enamored of, of Kahar. Um, and the other character, um, that I also really love is, is Captain Holly, who was the head of the uh, kind of the police force of the original Warren and tries to, um, you know, threatens and tries to arrest big wig and, and, and the group that's about to leave. And then later on, like circles back around and joins the Warren um, and that rabbit like twice goes through these intense traumas. Like they, they see their Warren destroyed almost like in this, like, you know, like Auschwitz type scenario, gassed. like where, yeah. where they're gassed and yeah. And then later on, um, has to go into this like brutal Warren barely escapes is also almost mowed down by a train. Um, and somehow like after these these two incidents kind of just like looks trauma in the eye and just like keeps keeps rolling you know like like just rabbits have this incredible ability of of to be resilient and uh working on this comic during the pandemic that um that was really good to 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 remember and be you know and be part of as I was working on this book throughout yeah i also love kahar and there is a not subtle lesson about cross-species cooperation in this book, right? Because the bird, the mouse, later on in the book, there are other animals who come into play and factor into the rabbits' disputes with other rabbits. And it's kind of deus ex machina, but it feels organic to the text because these are all people, or I should say creatures, from the natural world. Yeah. I also love the the, the names Richard gave uh, to things. Like, kahar sounds like the, the sound of uh... A seagull would make kaha, kaha, and like a herdudu, which is like a a car or truck, sounds like what it sounds like when you start an engine. Herdududu, herdududu. Um, so like when you when you use that kind of um, the Latin language, like it's really fun to like wrap your 
wrap your lips around some of that and, and read it out loud. Yeah, and you have a glossary in the back of the book, which I appreciated because um, you sort of know what they mean throughout, but it's helpful to be able to actually just go look at the definitions. Yeah, and of course, the glossary was part of the original book, which I just love too. And I love that they, you know, you, you can read it and kind of yeah get some context, and then you see what it is, and then you know hopefully you'll kind of maybe even go back and and then read it again. So what were the challenges of adapting this book to being a graphic novel? I mean, it's very visual. It's famously animated in this cartoon that apparently was so violent that it um, scared and even tormented a whole generation of British children. I was reading about that this morning. American children, too. It's the number one comment I think I get from... um from 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 people when I when they know that I've worked on this book, it's like I saw that movie and it traumatized me. <laughs> so, how did you try to depict? Let's start with talking about the violence. How did you try to d- depict the violence in a way that felt true to the text, but wasn't necessarily going to cause people nightmares? Yeah, I mean, I, I really just kept going back to the text and and trying not to be gratuitous. And, um, you know, the story is about surviving in the natural world, and it's kind of it is a bit of a brutal place. Um, but you know, we, we tried to do some stuff off camera. Um, we didn't linger on the, on the, on the, on the blood and the gore. Often you know, you would see perhaps like a fly land on somebody or, um, we would kind of, kind of depict it in a way that was a little more subtle, but there are parts where we don't pull punches and, you know, the rabbits are going after one another and, uh, you know, you do see a little blood here and there. And what other issues come up like were you reading the book thinking very much about the scenes and how to pace them and yeah how to visually represent the actual movement from one scene or one part up to another yeah the biggest challenge in some ways was just kind of um organizing all the information um when you're doing a graphic novel adaptation i'm actually thumbnailing the whole book out and i'm blocking it in with pictures visually First, even before I start writing a script, um, choreographing all the action, and then going to the text and uh, in selecting, you know, what text is going to go into um, into the word balloon. When I think about the collaborative process, you know, Richard Adams is is the first collaborator, of course, um, and he supplied this this book that is is so well written and paced that it really made my job a lot easier. You know, so. I, I basically almost um, made it like a mathematical formula. I have a friend, Paul Karasik, who, um, along with Dave Mazzucchelli, did a, an amazing adaptation of City of Glass, Paul Auster's book. And, uh, you know, he, he talked to me a little bit about how he, you know, would read the book and he knew how many pages the adaptation was and he knew how much kind of real estate for the adaptation he had for each chapter. So I kind of figured all of that out, knowing that if I saved a little more time here, I'd have a little more space um, later on in the book where I knew I'd have to open it up and I'd want it to become more cinemagraphic. Um, so that was that was part of the process of adaptation. But I felt pretty confident going in because it's so action-packed that, that um, it wasn't going to be so hard. I mean, the, the difficulty would be, the difficulty is just this many pages over the course of so many years. 
I think that the book is entirely or almost entirely told in terms of the words as dialogue, right? Yes. Which I thought made it move quickly and gives the characters voices. And was that a, did you have to work hard to make that happen? Or is there so much good dialogue from Adams that you could use that? Yeah. So um, my my collaborator, collaborator Joe Sutphin is, is really an amazing, amazing um, artist and illustrator. We went to England to to do visual research, and we actually um, got a tour of of the rabbit's journey, going to Watership Down to Ephrafra. And I mean, I was blown away that these things were actually real space, uh, real places. I know there's a map in the book as well, but when I read it, I you know this this American boy didn't know that it was an actual real map. You know, we both took a lot of photos and videos, uh, and when it was time to draw, so much of the visual descriptions. Uh, could be could be drawn. You know that old chestnut. A picture says a thousand words. Was was very apt in this case. I did want to keep um, people really in the present, like rabbits are, and really alive to the environment, um, and not kind of distance the reader with like you know like a, an overlay of narration and caption boxes. Um, and I felt like that just moved the move, like you said, moved the, moved the action along a little bit. Um, and then, of course, there were exceptions, like when rabbits were recounting um, stories or telling stories to one another or, or folk tales to one another. Yeah, I'm looking at this one scene that stood out to me a lot. There's a moment in the book where a couple of rabbits have to interact with humans, and you use the light the headlight from the car in this really effective way that gives you the sense of like the rabbits caught in the glare and their eyes, you know, are turning red in that way that happens when you see um, someone's eyes. And then there's like this hand that scoops down and there's no dialogue there. Uh, and then the rabbits start talking again. Yeah, that's uh, the rabbits call that going tharn, uh, T-H-A-R-N, like when you when you freeze in front of a, a bright light, and that happens to animals, and, and they're really um, they're really afraid to that happens. It's funny as I've been doing kind of uh, you know media and interviews uh, on Watership Down. I, I always think to myself, "Don't go tharn, James. Don't go tharn." Once the cameras start rolling, you're being recorded. <laughs> if um, you do that now, we'll just cut it. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love, you know, I, I've, I've drawn a lot of panels of comics in my career. So, um, some are a little more interior and some are a little more action packed. Uh, I've done several comics about baseball. So kind of choreographing action is really fun to do. Um, and, uh, you know, working, working out all those thumbnails, um, was, was a really fun challenge to take on. And, um, and, you know, one of the reasons I, I wanted, to work on this book, and, and this, I'm sure this has happened to you too, where you get maybe invited to to write a quote or an introduction to a book and you're busy, but you say to yourself like, oh, I really want to spend some time with this writer. Like, I really want to reflect on it. And unless I like do this professionally, I might not pick up this book and, and spend time doing it. And when I had the opportunity to to do this, I, I you know, that was part of my thinking. It's like, this is a book I want to spend time with. This is a book I've read Many, many times, every time I read it, like I feel like I, I see something I didn't see before. Um, and and um, yeah, let's let's do it. This episode of the Gamfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. 
It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. So you are a hugely voracious reader, I know, from being friends with you for a long time. What kind of literary tradition do you see Watership Down as fitting into? Is it like a YA classic? Do we think of it in that sort of, you know, epic journey, Bildungsroman of a young rabbit? Or are you, I was also thinking a little bit about George Orwell, though I couldn't decide if that was a stretch. Anyway, I just wonder what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think Richard Adams might say that's a stretch because he said repeatedly, this is just a story about rabbits. And I don't know if I believe him because, you know, somebody, he, he, he was very well read and, and, um, and read the classics and studied literature. So he, he must have had some sense that what he was doing there. Um, yeah, you know, that, that's a great question. And, and, you know, I think the thing with Watership Down, it is like a really weird book and it doesn't fit into like a category. And from what I understand, like, you know, every publisher in England rejected him several times before it found publication and they just didn't know what to do with it. It's like, it's not, you know, is it for kids? Is it for adults? Um, nobody quite knew. And I actually assigned the book to, to um, students of mine at the Center for Cartoon Studies because I thought, well, there'll be something for everybody in this book, whether you like nature writing, whether you like um, you know, the, the political parables, whether you, you know, you're a superhero fan. Um, so it crosses a lot of different lines. And I think that's part of its um, enduring appeal. Um, and, you know, now with publishing, everything, you know, has certain categories. Like if um, Catcher in the Rye came out today, like, would it would it be a YA novel? Like, maybe, right? Like, it, it definitely is, you know, it's an environmental story. It's It's an adventure story. There's also this kind of like band of brothers war story to it because I think some of it reflects Richard Adams is um he he was a World War II veteran and um fought in the war so I think a lot of the characters are based on um people that he fought alongside. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I can't help but think of Animal Farm, um, right? Because it's like a bunch of animals <laughs> and they're yeah. so... But I also felt like that was sort of wrong, that the allegory of Animal Farm is so obvious. Like, it's supposed to yeah. be the whole point. Whereas I actually had never really thought about the kind of underlying politics of this book until I started reading for this interview, at which point I you know, discovered that China had banned it, as I said earlier, in 1965, which I thought was kind of wild, because I don't feel like whatever anti-Marxist message is here, that it's so apparent. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, when I think about, I mean, I read Animal Farm years and years ago, and I really don't remember the characters, but I remember the, that it was a political message, and I remember the, you know, the basics of what it's about. But I think when you read Watership Down, because you remember the characters, and though they are so moving, um, and I, I still I cry when I get to the end of the book. Like I am so moved by the end of it, and I love the character so much that you, it kind of like you, you, the, the political messages um, aren't, aren't kind of on the forefront. Um, and I, I think also like the other kind of political allegory, if you will, in the book is that whole uh, warren of snares where they go to a warren, and there's just these very fat, comfortable rabbits with plenty to eat and there's a farmer that gives them food but you can enjoy all this but you just can't ask any questions you can't look too deeply about anything because you know it might reveal like this 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 pact that 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 you've you've made to keep that lifestyle that's almost as um i don't know i i I found that also as as a political allegory very very relevant to today as well in our in our society Yeah, and that reminds me of the fable by Ursula Le Guin, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, which is a really chilling tale about exactly that kind of sacrifice. And I see it's from the same era because it was written in 1974. I had another, I guess, semi-political question about this book, which I think one of the challenges for a reader in 2023 is that it is very much a book driven by uh, the male perspective. Um, The does, the female rabbits, really only show up so that they can be captured and thus provide um, litters for the warren. And they're just, like, not very memorable characters. Like, their job is to kind of be rescued, like the classic damsels in distress. And I know you thought about this, and I'm just curious how you grappled with that problem in the novel. It's very true. And, um, And they do not play a prominent role. I was listening uh, to a podcast uh, where, where Richard's daughters were, were actually talking about this. And by the time, you know, they, he started, uh, th- this book started as a, as a story that, that Richard Adams would tell his daughters when they were young on, on, on car rides to, um, to help the time go along. And, uh, but when, by the time he actually wrote the book and it was coming out, I think they were like college age or around there. And, um, and they, they kind of, challenged him on that as well. Um, I think the story is very much like this kind of band of brothers that are, that is reflecting uh, his, his kind of wartime experience to a certain extent. And also he was a man of his times from what I understand um, the, the, the female character with the most agency is this rabbit called Heisenflay, who is like a, a really actually kind of cool character. She kind of has five or psychic abilities, but she also, um, you know, she, she's also ready. She's really super brave and, and, and ready to, you know, try to try to fight and defend herself and kick some ass like, like the, her male counterparts. And from what I understand in, um, 
Richard wrote tales of Watership Down, like you're going to return to this world. And later down the, the line, Heisenflay uh, became the chief rabbit of the Warren. So uh, I think Richard himself like tried to to make a corrective. And I don't know if that just, you know, came from the urgings of his daughters or, um, you know, he came to that himself um, and maybe hearing some more criticism of the book. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, d- I did try to think about it. Um, Certainly, like I was going, I, I the plan was to remain faithful to the book. I think I've seen other adaptations where they introduce women characters and then they make it worse. You know, like like they they become the characters that the men just fight over and they they're batting their eyebrow eyelashes and it's just really cringy. So um, I, I feel like they there there's an omission here um, in a way, but I I feel like uh, um, there there isn't. There isn't an insult to that injury. I think you're right. I mean, it feels like it would be cheating to try to rewrite that aspect of the text for our modern feminist sensibilities, right? Like the book has its limitations. It was written in 1972. He probably just wasn't thinking about it very much, even though he had daughters. Yeah. And, and you know, does every story have to have every type of character in it, right? Like this is a story that just that, that doesn't. Um, and I don't know, you can play ifs and buts with this, but... Um, it, it is what it is, you know, and, you know, hopefully that admission doesn't take away from all the wonderful things that it does offer. Yes. Last question. So what is Watership Down? It's the name of a place in Britain. And which part of the English countryside are we talking about? Right. So it is um, south um, southwest of London by about an hour uh, or so. Um, and it's just gorgeous English countryside. And, um, and Watership, the Downs, you know, like Watership Down is an actual like hill. I mean, it's just as it's depicted in the book. It's, uh, you get to the top of this, this hill and it's, it's, it's breathtaking. It really is. Um, and you know, the, the, the Warren, the, the honeycomb Warren where they all lived, like that tree is gone, but you can still kind of see where it was. And, you know, you'll, you'll see some like wood railings and, and people will scratch, People have visited it. It's almost like people go on pilgrimages there. They'll scratch like, you know, Fiverr was here, Hazel Ra forever. Um, and it's very moving. Like, I, it really felt like we were on like hollowed ground when we, when, when Joe and I, um, and we were with R- Richard's daughters, Roz and, and Juliet. It was very moving to kind of be up there and be entrusted to um, kind of make this adaptation. Yeah, it really is a kind of gift of trust to give over a work like this. And I hope that this adaptation helps it find a whole new audience, both generationally and um, internationally. Thanks so much for joining me. It was my pleasure, Emily. Thanks for having me. That is it for this month's edition of GabFest Reads. Our producer is Shana Roth. Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations of Podcasts at Slate. And Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate. We'll be back next month with another conversation about another book. Until then, all three of us, David, John, and I, will be back in your feed on Thursday with a new episode of the Slate Political Gab Fest. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 